Hello, I'm Frankie Wolf, and this is the inaugural broadcast of Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers, where we chat each month with some of the most amazing women writing all across Kentucky. Today, we're talking to Crystal Wilkinson, one of the most kick-ass Kentucky women writers I consider myself lucky enough to know. There are some writers who will leave you only with their published words, others who will talk about the surface-level process. But Crystal goes bone deep, allows herself to be vulnerable about her challenges with writing and other aspects of her life in a way that gives a rare glimpse into the writing life of one who can write things that make you really feel something. Her words have made me hold my breath, cry real tears, itch to fight someone, and tuck myself into a safe space. Working with Crystal on my transition to fiction just over a decade ago set me on the path that I was looking for, and I couldn't be more grateful. But I'm not the only writer who admires her hard work and determination, or who counts her among their important mentors, teachers, and trusted readers. She does much more than write or teach others to write. She builds community, one reader, one writer, one neighbor at a time. Crystal's latest book, The Birds of Opulence, just received the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. She's also published two collections of stories, Blackberries, Blackberries, which received the Chafin Award for Appalachian Literature, and Water Street, which was a finalist for both the Orange Prize for Fiction and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. Both of those books are being reissued by the University Press of Kentucky. She's a founding member of the Appalachian Poets, a professor in Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, and the Appalachian Writer-in-Residence at Berea College. Crystal is also the co-owner of the Wild Fig Books and Coffee, along with her partner, Ron Davis. It's where we're talking today. Welcome to our show, Crystal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you don't mind, I'd like to start with a reading from your latest book, The Birds of Opulence. Okay, so I'm going to be reading from the first chapter. Um, the Birds of Opulence um, is sort of a fragmented novel um, in that each of the chapters are, are narrated by um, or from a different point of view um, within the characters. And this is the only chapter in the book that is written from the first person. Um, so it's been narrated by Yolanda, who actually hasn't been born yet. The Known Bird Yolanda Imagine a tree, a bird in the tree, the hills, the creek, a possum, the dog chasing the possum. Imagine yourself a woman who gathers stories in her apron. The sun peeped through the silver maples the day I was born. In the back field, one of old man Lucian's beagles cornered a possum. The dog snarled, pulled back on her haunches, and bit the possum's neck and hindquarters. The possum, bloody and scared, caught in the first streams of daylight, played dead. Up on the knob, mist burned off quickly into another hot day. Outside, my daddy, Joe Brown, tinkered underneath the hood of his pickup. Scars webbed out like a map on his hands the longest one disappearing between the thumb and forefinger of his right hand. The smell of coffee drifted from the house into the driveway. He looked back toward the porch where the kitchen was and knew my mother would be calling him to the table soon. He sped up his work, quickened his hands. Sometimes a discomfort settles in Daddy's back. He stops whatever he's doing, holds his palms to his kidneys and says, Mercy. A look of longing slides down his face. We can see he misses Aunt Joe and Uncle Peck, who took him in as a boy, 
when his mother died and raised him in the city. But he'd been away from them for more than 20 years by the time I was born. By then, Daddy was devoted to Mama, devoted to all of us. He had already learned how to blend into this river of crazy women. On that day, by the time he moved from the pickup to the Plymouth, morning had opened like an orange flower. He smeared grease on his forehead when he reached to wipe the sweat. Later, he would change the oil on Clem Jenkins' Ford and replace a muffler on Mrs. Carter's Oldsmobile. Inside the house, Mama Minnie, my great-grandmother, rubbed the low swell of my mother's belly. I was there, quiet as a bird, curled like a question mark, waiting. Mama Minnie thumped Mama's belly as if it were a melon, then pushed gently, a pressure I could feel from inside. She's a good size, Mama Minnie said to all her girls, Mama, Granny Tookie, and even me. She, Mama asked. Yes, she. Tookie, my grandmother, swept the floor and supped her teeth and bounced the dirt off the broom hard when she heard Mama Minnie say I was a girl. She checked the biscuits, turned the bacon with a fork, winced at the heat. She felt a headache coming on. Lucy, sure as I'm Minnie May Good, that's a girl in there. Mama Minnie patted Mama's belly again, then poured the last bit of raw egg from the bowl into the hot skillet. Mama pulled dishes from the cabinet, set five plates on the table. Mama Minnie groaned, sort of sung. Tookie made a clicking noise in her throat, adding to the rhythm. My brother Kevin, who we've always called Kiki, played under the kitchen table. If he craned his neck toward the ceiling, he could see their faces but he already knew the expressions they were making. He watched their feet moving from one side of the green linoleum to the other. He knew their kitchen dance well. He pushed a car along the floor, letting it crash into the table leg. A growl grew louder in his stomach and blended with the scraping, the humming, the scooting sounds of his family. He watched Mama Minnie, Granny, Tookie, and Mama already learning the ways of women. Mama poured coffee, Mama Minnie pulled out a stick of butter. Granny Tookie stirred a pan of sweet rice and couldn't stop herself from thinking her new grandchild should be another boy. Boy give you less to worry about. But Mama Minnie was sure of the signs when she saw a bird on the window ledge, not a Kentucky bird that she could identify, a rare bird with a breast of red freckled with yellow dots. She sunk the heavy skillet into the hot water, its weight straining against her wrists. The bird perched on a branch outside the window and ruffled its feathers, then pranced in a full circle before it looked Mama Minnie square in the face and cocked its pretty head like it was listening to what she had to say. Won't be long, she whispered to the listening bird and to herself. This knowing, reading signs, was familiar as her own two hands. So right away this sets up the mythology of the family and the place. Mama Minnie can read signs just like uh, so many other people we've known in the country. We hear it from her and we hear it from other characters. Um, and you, like you said, this is being told from the perspective of an unborn child, which is a very unusual choice to make as mm -hmm. a writer. Um, but she can remember every detail. So there's a mythology there. Uh, I came from a family of storytellers and just the most mundane story would soon become legend and mythology. Uh, over time. So was that the kind of experience you grew up with? Yes, I do come from a, I was the 
the really quiet child, the quiet grandchild in the corner. Um, and so I heard everything. I didn't talk much, but I think I sort of absorbed that way, sort of the country way of doing things. And, um, yeah, there was always a story behind everything. And my grandfather um, told stories, told a lot of stories that his, his, his father had taught him. And my grandmother told stories as well. Everybody, aunts, uncles. Mm -hmm. People, uh, as you started writing, did people, you know, change the way they were telling stories around you because they realized you were watching? Um, some of them did. And then um, some of my uncle, my mother's brother, and um, he's passed away now. But every so often he used to call me and he'd say something like, um, you know, when I was a little boy, uh, I remember one time, like he told these horrible, how horrible he was as a little boy. He tells stories about, um, you know, back in their time, um, they couldn't go to this, the white school. So they had a teacher, uh, they had their own school that was on my grandparents' property. And then what the black families would do was to take turns being the family that hosted the teacher. So sometimes the teacher would stay with my family. Sometimes they would stay with another family. And so my uncle was the rouseabout, and he would do things like he put a banana in the teacher's <laughs> tailpipe so that her car would backfire. He, like, peed on the stove, the heating stove, so that the, the school would stink and they would let the school out. So he would tell me these stories, and I would think, why in the world is he telling me all this stuff? And he'd say, well, I just wanted to tell you all that so you can put it in your next book. <laughs> and then he wouldn't want anything else. He'd say, well, I'll see you later. <laughs> so there's people like Uncle Bub who did that. And then there's other people in the family that, that are like, you know, shh, don't say that around her. That's what they, the kids call my brother, Uncle Bub. <laughs> really? Yeah. I've had experiences where I write stuff and... He, you know, I published something and he read it. He called me. He said, that's not what happened, but I like your version better. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see that family reaching out to try to get you to write about them. You know, you do sometimes have those family members who mm -hmm. are like clucking their tongues and like, don't you write that in your book? Quit <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> looking at me like that. Right. Have you had that experience yes. too? Yeah. Yeah. I've also written about family members who didn't recognize themselves. Um, and that's been quite amusing. And But they'll come back later and talk about that character mm -hmm. and say, you know, lordy me, that one character. And I just kind of <laughs> chuckle under my breath. Ha, ha, yeah. ha. <laughs> so how did all of those things, how do they influence what it is that you get on the page eventually? Well, I think, and this is what I tell my students, I think that when we sit down to, to write, we bring all of our experiences with us. And uh, that... That writing, when you're writing at your height, is a combination of um, your experience um, and, and your curiosities. Uh, and I think through that, you make some kind of discovery. Uh, so I think I bring all of that um, with me when I come to a character. Um, so there's always that thread of truth. And sometimes it's a thin thread, mm -hmm. you know, where uh, a character is an amalgam of people that I knew. And I think that some of the traditions are just in my bones and they transfer uh, quite easily into the fiction. And sometimes I, sometimes I don't know that I'm writing about myself or writing about my family or writing about 
you know, I'll think I'm making something up and then I'll have a memory and go, oh, okay, so that did happen. I remember somebody telling me about that now. Um, and the idea of storytelling, I didn't realize until several drafts in this book that it permeated uh, so deeply that the storytelling was also a part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't come into fruition for me fully as something, as a tool or as um, a trope that I could manage and work with and make sure that it was there more until several drafts into the book. And I was like, oh, okay. It's about storytelling too. Yeah. I didn't even think about that being a conscious choice. It just felt so natural Mm -hmm. to the flow. Actually, all of your work feels like it's about storytelling through story. I love that. Um, You mentioned curiosity and I, I have this obsession with birds they show up in every story I write. I've got them tattooed all over me. And so I would have picked your book up off a shelf, any bookstore, because it's got that Sankofa bird and it's the birds of opulence. And it's like, opulence is a great word. So I, I really got excited when I saw that that was your, your new book. Um, so I think a lot about birds and symbology and the mythologies behind birds mm-hmm. and, you know, they're showing up everywhere here. Maybe it's just because I'm always looking for birds. But <laughs> um, I think, obviously, you probably did some work on that too, right? Um, so we've got, like, the rare bird that you just read. We've got hummingbirds showing up. Mm-hmm. We've got the crow. We've got chickens. There's some other birds uh, coming up here and there. So how did birds become a part of this story initially? Well, um it's it's that kind of thing. I think because I worked on this book so long um, that, you know, when you were saying a few minutes ago uh, that you thought the storytelling was natural. Well, it was in, in some draft. And then at some point when I, when I kept revising and kept looking at it, um, I would see connections almost like palimpsests to see things that were underneath. And I'd go, oh, let me dig a little deeper and bring that up a little bit more so that it's so that it's intentional mm-hmm. um, and um, that's kind of what happened to the birds because the book for for the longest um, like since graduate school it was called opulence mm-hmm. um, and sort of the double meaning of opulence um, when you have that word that's such a lush word such a richness and then uh, have an area that's sort of impoverished. Um, so that was already there. Mm-hmm. And then the birds were everywhere. <laughs> uh, and so after I noticed them in a more intentional way, um, I began to work on that more, work on it more with the titles, work on it more with um, the symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my my family folklore came in. Um, and you know, just the way that I grew up, like, you know, uh, a bird been in the house being a sign of death. So all of those sort of signs of birds. Um, so I did family research, um, and regional research and, um, people who are true bird watchers have been critical. Uh, there's a man who I love dearly that's really into birds and he keeps trying to tell me what kind of bird this is the one that with the rare <laughs> i'm like i don't care what kind it is it's a rare bird that they he's like but it sounds like a such and such and i'm like okay um but 
it became, and then, you know, the Sankofa bird and the idea of um, what we keep Mm -hmm. as we go from generation to generation. So that whole layer. And then even the point of view, uh, at, at one point, I had a real hard time controlling the point of view because I had made it like pure omniscience. And, um, which is very difficult. Yeah. To do. And it was really hard to control. It was the most unwieldy point of view. And then, uh, one day it came upon me to, to use, to think about it visually, to have a physical bird and to think about that this bird, this particular omniscient, that it wasn't God, but it was a bird that flew over this particular town and that sometimes it would light outside of somebody. Sometimes it would be uh, an inside bird. Uh, And then that's the way I was able to control the point of view, to think about it physically Mm -hmm. and where the bird was lighting, and how far up in the sky the bird was. Yeah. And part of that process was pairing them with other care with different characters mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that's the part i always find really exciting it's like what is the bird that connects to this particular character mm-hmm. and maybe somebody who doesn't watch birds they're not going to get it so they're like little hidden nuggets i got excited because i was like i know what that bird means <laughs> <laughs> but you can enjoy the story even if you don't yeah yeah um so when i teach writing to young people said I teach to teenagers mostly, I'll use your work a lot to show how to do characters. Um, Because I think you have the ability to say so much about a character in just a simple line, more than some people can do in a whole page or even a whole chapter about a character. Um, This one that always sticks with me, and it's just so perfect for summing up young men and how they act, was uh, in Blackberries, you have... Jude and David saying corny and they say it at the same time they slap each other high five and then it's just followed by that line they always do that mm-hmm. and so you just know those boys because we've all known those boys and they say corny things and they think it's hilarious and you know so just just within the space of a line we get those characters and what they're about um probably my favorite ever is uh, Yolanda psychiatrist in in Water Street He's short and bald, round like a black snowman, but handsome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I could spend all day on that line. I just, I just think it's, it's wonderful. And then another one that's really evocative to me, and it became more so, you know, after my daughter, you know, was running around. Because when Water Street first came out, she was still a toddler. But then I saw it, you know, when she got to be five and was kind of everywhere, this idea that Aunt Daphne is one of those mothers with octopus arms. So it's just like constantly reining them in. Uh, so how is it that you can do that in such small spaces with these characters? Hmm. Well, I think one of the things is um, is that I'm, I end up being visual. Like I use that, um, that metaphor of the birds. Um, so when I, when I am formulating a character, um, they have to be a, become a living, breathing person. And I usually try to, long before I write, I have actually physically seen this person. You know, they're not real, but I have to, they have to become a, a living, breathing human being before I can even write them. Like I have ideas for characters all the time. And the only ones I end up writing about are the ones that I can see in a place, in their place, um, in action, 
So I think because I can, uh, I visualize those moments. Sometimes I end up acting them out. Um, that that's what I try to hone in on what, what characterizes this person mm-hmm. most, what's unusual about them. And that's kind of how I do it. And it, it, it's, um, I try to make it, it comes naturally in some ways, but it also takes a lot of work. Um, sometimes I do a lot of exercises and a lot of, uh, work around one human being, one character at a time Yeah. before I start writing about them. Do you do any other visual arts to help with that? Um, I haven't, but I, uh, what most people don't know about me is that that's how I started out. Like I haven't actually painted anything since college. Uh, but, um, as a young person coming out of college, that's what I had a scholar. I had my, my scholarship was in art, not writing. Um, so I have that background. So you trained yourself to think visually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just, and I used to be a photographer. I spent a number of years as a photographer too. Yeah. So that makes sense that you, (laughs) that you have that connection and you know, you have a visual artist (laughs) living around. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so one of the other things I always um, impress upon my students are around character names. And sometimes your character names just slay me. I mean, because they feel familiar, but yet unfamiliar at the same time. Um, you know, we always had people named after animals and food. You know, one of my favorites was my mom had a friend named Possum. Uh, but you've got Mouse and Bug and Peanut, Uncle Butter and Peaches. I love all of those. And then you, you get into that Southern tradition of the two names, like Ray Ray. I think a lot of people have known a Ray Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, Autumn Marie, Addie B, Orly, Minnie Mae. And then, you know, that very natural step into when you have children talking about an adult saying somebody like Miss Sandy or Miss So-and-so. Um, and, you know, some of these things are nicknames. Some of them are real names. Um, and then you have your character who changes her name to a more African name. Um, and then you get somebody renamed because his wife won't call him by his nickname. So there's so much going on with names and naming. Um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about what goes into naming characters and even the evolution of their naming. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that's part of the characterization. Um, and that's actually part of a, an exercise that I do too. Like, what is this character's nickname? Do they have a nickname? Um, and, uh, Giving a character a name is the very last thing I do. Sometimes I'll name them while I'm writing and, uh, but sometimes they keep that name and sometimes they don't. Um, but a lot of times when I'm doing an exercise and I'm drafting a character, I won't give them a name until I see who they are. And then it sort of comes naturally. I think over the years, um, I like uh, a lot of, a lot of country names. So sometimes I've actually taken, I don't even know where this is now, but in my early writing life and probably, yes, definitely some of those names in Blackberries, I had a, a roster of my family names, like old family names from, from years ago. And some of them were like people who were buried in our family graveyard. Um, so some of those names, uh, come from there. Um, and were real people, even though I didn't do any research to attach their names. But uh, the sort of double name thing, I think that's part of being country (laughs) and part of being Appalachian. Almost everybody I know 
as a double name. Mm-hmm. Or if you hear your double name, you know you're in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, even even at this age, my mom passed away um, in August, but I knew when she said Crystal Lane, which my name is Crystal Elaine, <laughs> but when she said Crystal Lane, I knew that she was getting ready to fuss at me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had that. <laughs> um. So you mentioned last, it was last summer with, um, when you interviewed with Silas in Appalachian Heritage, you said that when you decided to write fiction, you had to fight the poet inside of you. And so what always strikes me about your prose is that, you know, that thing that makes me go back and reread these lines is that they're poetic. There's a, a real attention to lyricism, cadence, and specific word choices. And that's the work of a poet, really. What does that battle look like when you go to the page and how does it affect the way you write? Why would you fight the poet at all? Well, I think what happened to me as a, um, as a natural storyteller, um, which is where I was when I wrote Blackberries, like I knew what the basic tenements of, I mean, I was already teaching. I knew what the basic tenements of writing were, but I hadn't gone to graduate school. I hadn't got an MFA. Um, and then when I got the MFA, I felt like that I sort of lost the sort of natural storytelling. And then I think it's back now. Um, and one of the, one of the things I can't even say it was a, a defiant act. I think it was just a, a, gro- a sign of growth that I finally said, you know, with this book and I fought the birds of opulence for a long time. I thought it needed to be, uh, traditional it take it taken me so long to write it I thought it needed to be 300 pages I thought it needed to be um, as much in its structure pure fiction so that I could show off what I learned and it needed to have a you know straightforward plot and all of these things and I really um, I had done that uh, sort of I was told to do that by my agent and by editors and that was what was going to make it be palpable to uh, the New York audience and um, at some point I think I had sort of massaged all of the um, magic out, all of the truth out and I realized that that at some point, there weren't two writers. There wasn't Crystal the poet and Crystal the fiction writer, that they were the same. And that this book sort of demanded, maybe another book will be more linear, but this book demanded that it not be yeah. um, because of its subject and just because that's the kind of book that it is. Um, and that was the map that I had, that had been given to me from the book, and that's the map that I had to present to the, to reader that this is the kind of book this is and this is how you read it and I had to work on trying to establish that and then at some point um, instead of trying to go big I think I had the book up to about 300 pages at some point or close to more of a traditional novel and I decided this wasn't it and what I did was go the opposite way and boil it down and I actually edited it uh, in its last stages the same way that I would a poem by just distillation boiling it down and boiling it down reading it aloud um, 
sometimes counting syllables in a sentence, all kinds of things uh, to try to get it down. I had a lot of, um, instead of going to my fiction friends, I had a lot of poets that, I mean, Morse Manning read some of it, Nikki Finney read some of it, and um, two writers who know restraints mm-hmm, in poetry, mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so um, I stopped fighting the poet. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it shows in the finished book, mm-hmm. because there are those lines, and where you choose to put the breath feels very poetic. Mm-hmm. And you don't always get that in fiction. Well, and I think I've done, I, I think that's just, um, uh, I think I've stopped fighting the poet period because I think even in my nonfiction, that's where I'm at now with uh, the nonfiction book that I'm working on. It's it's going to, you know, my agent is going, ah, again, because <laughs> I'm sending her chapters and she's saying, Crystal, this is not a chapter. This is not a nonfiction. This is not a memoir chapter. This is a poem. And I'm like, yes. Well, great. (laughs) (laughs) It's a memoir by someone who's poetic heart. (laughs) Yes, it is. So speaking of those things, like repetition is something that you use a lot and um, actually have inspired me to think about more critically in my work. Um, One of the things about these three is that repetition comes in the way of what can be mundane things, um, cooking, news watching, even love making between old old friend or old uh, partners. But you don't make them seem mundane. You know, somebody's flipping corn cakes in the middle of something else that's happening. So how do you do that? How do you take these rhythms of the daily life and make them not feel boring? Um. Well, I think choosing which ones to bring forward. Um, like, you know, uh, for uh, cooking is holy in country families. And I think that a lot of major decisions uh, uh, in families, particularly country ones, get done in the kitchen. And that's a community. It's almost like church uh, being in the kitchen. So um, I had to, to have those uh, scenes. I did notice at one point... Um, that they seem to be cooking the same things in one draft. And I was thinking, well, I should probably vary these, but they probably would cook the same things. But does this make good fiction? You know, I had to make, I had to think <laughs> about all of these things. Like, does that make good fiction for them to, you know, make the same food again? It makes yeah. good truth because that's what we do. We have, you know, beans once a week or whatever. Yeah, biscuits uh, every Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, so I had to to change it up a little bit. And then how the roles changed. I mean, I thought it was a good way, the cooking was a good way to show um, the progression in the generations. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, um, the the gathering, the, what is it, the dinner on the grounds, mm-hmm. how there was like a little bit, and it was just very sleight of hand, the little talking about what different people brought, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's what people do, right? You go to a family reunion or some kind of big party that doesn't happen very often and see people, you know, looking slant-eyed at who brought what weird thing, oh, mm-hmm. it's vegetarian, you know. <laughs> Bringing the vegetarian food home is always the the sticking point and <laughs> everybody's mm-hmm. going to talk about it for weeks. So yeah, I like to see the food in there and I, I hadn't noticed the variance. Um, 
but the rhythms were what stuck out to me. It didn't matter what they were making. It was mm-hmm. that clanking of pans, that flipping of things, the stirring of things. And you could tell by the words that you used about how they moved the things through the kitchen, if, if it was a position of peace or of anger or sadness with mm-hmm. the character. And I thought that was really, really exciting to read as a writer and as someone who loves to spend a lot of time in the kitchen cooking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things um, that comes through a lot uh, in your characters is, is their sexuality. And sometimes you've got sexual awakening um, or longing, which which does happen a lot, especially in Birds of Opulence. You know, we've got Mona. She's got a lot of longing going on. Um, but then there's a lot of, there's a long thread um, through many of the women's lives around sexual violence. So you just published your essay in Oxford American. It was on my birthday this year, actually. It was a nice read to wake up to, I have to say. Um because I thought it showed a lot of vulnerability for you mm-hmm. to do that. Um, so how was it writing about your own experiences with sexual awakening and violence as compared to writing in a fiction setting? Um, it was very um, frightening, actually, um, because I think that, you know, like I said, when I sit down to write fiction, I bring all my experiences and I bring those horrible ones with me too. And sometimes um, it's part of that sort of, curiosity and for my own discovery and my own growth I'm filtering some of my own um experiences through these characters but it's surrounded it's it's um cloaked and packaged by so much so many layers of fiction um that there probably is something therapeutic about it maybe or at least something um um like I said some kind of discovery is made through it um but it's not full on fact in any way mm-hmm. in any of my my fiction. Um, so approaching it um, with a piece of nonfiction, um, I felt very exposed and very um, vulnerable. They'd ask me for the music issue to um, they know that I'm um, that I love Prince and I actually they ask me to uh, to submit a piece and so I. I submitted my proposal and uh, they accepted it. And um, I had planned on, you know, I was so devastated when Prince died and uh, I knew all the reasons why. And there are lots of reasons and I didn't expect for this one to come out. Um, And I thought it was going to be much, um, much more uh, a piece that wasn't, that deep um, into my own emotions. Um, and so I, I wrote it and then I kept trying to back up out of it. Uh, so even though it's a short piece and it's a short lyrical essay, I kept trying to back out of it and say, well, let me write something much more straightforward. Yeah. Um, and then I finally again gave in and said, okay, I'm this is what wants to come out. So, yeah, I think that what we've become accustomed to with memoir is this, sometimes this barrage of details that leave nothing to the imagination does it, that don't allow us to fill in the gaps with our own personal experience the way that sometimes fiction can do or, for, mm-hmm. or poetry can do. Um, we've been on that track for a while with memoir. Um, and this was vulnerable in a way that it let us fill in those gaps because there, 
you know, a lot of us have had experiences that we can relate to that. And without all of the nitty gritty details, right, Mm -hmm. it allows us to connect more. But then also those silences, you know, after a specific sentence, you know, I think the line was by the end of the first year, I had been raped twice, Mm -hmm. full stop. And that just left me like, oh, I have to stop for a minute about that. Um, So I I thought it was beautiful that you brought that poetic voice to something that was a tribute to Prince and to your former self and to that young woman who was afraid and, you know, trying to figure things out. I just thought thought it was a beautiful essay. Thank you. Um, It was hard to write, even in its brevity. It was really hard to write. Well, the shorter it is, the harder it is. (laughs) And you're working on memoir now. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to seeing some more stuff like this. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that voice is really, really powerful. Thank you. It's exciting. Um, so, you know, related to this, um, the the issue of mental illness comes through a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, depression comes through a lot from sexual violence. But there's more than that going on in your book. It's not just related to sexual violence. Mm-hmm seems to be related to a lot of things, you know, family history, um, possible biological connections, Mm -hmm. but you've got um, things that are diagnosed and undiagnosed. Um, You've got talk of medications, of talk therapy, institutionalization of some people, suicide, and even a murder, right? Mm -hmm. Whether we want to call it a murder or not, you know, on paper, that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So there's one that always uh, comes back to me, and it's about the pain that mental illness can bring into a family, and it's from Kiki, and he's talking to his mother, Lucy, on the phone, and she she has had bouts of depression, um, which we see very clearly in The Birds of Opulence. Um, but this was from your earlier Water Street, and he's talking to Lucy on the phone and says, you know, Yolanda is, quote, feeling bad again. Um, And what he says is, I hear my mother sigh at the other end of the line. It is a deep, long sigh, and I wonder what that must feel like to be the parent of a sick child, to hurt so much from someone else's pain. And, you know, I'm someone who's the parent of a child who's been sick, and so those few sentences, again, with the brevity, it gets to me. I I feel gut sick thinking about the pain that I've endured, um, you know, to be... um, someone who doesn't know how to fix a certain thing with my child or feeling helpless. So what kinds of experiences are you drawing to be able to create this and capture this kind of emotion in just such a small space? Um, Well, I mean, I think personally, of course, I'm a, I'm a mom. I have um, three children and two stepchildren and uh, seven grandchildren, six now. Um, So I think, Part of that uh, tapping into that has to do uh, with being a parent, with being a mom, uh, with motherhood um, and the pangs of motherhood. Um, And I think another part of it has to do with being the daughter, um, the daughter of a mother who had been diagnosed with a mental illness Um, and struggling with depression um, myself at at uh, various times in my life, particularly when I was in my 20s. Um, and, you know, my mother was diagnosed with as being a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, 
and there seems to be uh, a thread of that um, in my family through several generations of not necessarily to that extreme, but various bouts of the blues that my grandmother would say, you know, so-and-so's got the blues. Um, and uh, postpartum, you know, all of those. Um, there, there are varying mental illnesses that both men and women have, but I think that on top of that, sort of the weight of mental illness with women is different, uh, particularly if you add in uh, postpartum and all the variances that that can have. Um, so all of those things come from the personal or the, the imagined personal. Um, one of the things, since I've been doing a lot of research um, on my, my mother and her years of uh, fighting with mental illness and getting healthy, um, being on her medication for years and years instead of stopping and starting. Um, one of the things that's an interesting that I've been able to see now with a different lens is letters from my grandmother and uh, her pain as a mother. Um, you know, in some of the letters that she would write the doctor, she's just saying, tell me, you know, when is she going to get well? Is she going to be the same? Will she ever be the same? And that sort of thing. So all of that comes from from that kind of place and I think when I wrote that I hadn't read hadn't read that yet I hadn't done that research yet um, so anything that you see in Water Street um, and even in Blackberry it just comes from being a mother and being a daughter um, and, and observing those things knowing deep down in your gut that's that's mm -hmm. what it was mm -hmm. yeah with the mental illness we also have that thread of family violence that comes through these. Um, and I'd like you to read something about that. Um, in The Birds of Opulence, you have a chapter called The Crow in the House. Somehow a chapter doesn't feel quite right when we're talking about this book, but we'll call it a chapter. Um, it's called The Crow in the House, and it, it deals with a pretty horrific act of violence. Could you read that for us? Sure. The Crow in the House, Tookie. Birds were always a sure sign. She sees the crow perched up high on the whatnot shelf, sitting between a glass replica of the Statue of Liberty and a tiny ceramic boy walking a yellow dog. The bird pecks at the head of the boy. She ignores it for a time, then watches it fly around the living room, lighting on the lamp at the top of the curtain on the fireplace. She watches it fly against the closed window, then back to the lampshade. She hears the bird rustle its feathers. As she looks out the window, a branch cracks, falls from high up in the oak tree. As usual, when she is alone, she walks back and forth across the living room floor, hands clutched in front of her, both remembering and trying not to. She has a headache. She is sleepy, but refuses to lie down and nap. She keeps her eyes on the yard, looking from tree to tree, flower to flower but her thoughts are beyond this place and time. It's 1943. She is scared. She is as surprised to know that she is carrying a baby as she was when Bruce Harrison took her to the center of the cornfield and kissed her so hard she thought she would die. He took her clothes off, promised it wouldn't hurt, 
promised he'd take it out before anything bad happened. But when he climbed on top of her, it had hurt like nothing she had ever known. And then he had mounted her and put all his weight into her chest and pushed inside her and began to move faster and faster like he was trying to kill something and wouldn't stop. She knew it was wrong then, knew it was the anything bad that he had talked about that was happening, tried to close herself up down there to close the space that she had opened up. And when she ran home and found bloodstains in her panties, even though she knew it wasn't her time of the month, she wanted to go tell her mother right there and then, but she didn't. So she just prayed and prayed that nothing else bad would happen, but then it did. Minnie hadn't told her about the babies, but Tookie knew she was pregnant the way any woman knows. Her menses stopped, breasts grew swollen, sickness came, baby in there. And who else would a child turn to but her mama, the one who had been there to nurse her cuts and bruises, the one who had stayed up with her for three days when she had the fever and changed the ice rags on her head and sung her songs? Who else but a mama would understand this? But Tookie had barely got the words from her mouth before Minnie Mae said, I didn't raise you to be no whore. Then the strap of the belt, Mama, I didn't know. Knew enough to spread your legs. Knew that, didn't you? Each word came with a lash on her back, with her back turned to protect the baby. She couldn't see her mother's face, but she couldn't hear, but she could hear her labored breathing, heard the shuffle of footsteps behind her when Daddy tried to pull the belt from her mama's hands, could see her brothers cowering in the corners of the kitchen and see their scared faces begging their mother to stop. She remembers her father finally pulling her mother away, her brothers slinking off grateful that the beating had finally stopped. Remembers being in a house full with two adults and two children and having nobody to comfort her. Remembers pulling her own bruised and bloodied body up and going into the bathroom, taking a bath and crawling, sore and marked for life into the bed. Remembers wishing for her mother's touch on her forehead, on her arm, somewhere. Remembers needing her mother's healing hand. Tookie taps her head, trying to settle back into the present, gazes out into the yard until she hears the car pull up and the voices of Minnie Mae, Lucy, and the baby girl coming into the house. She rubs her arms. The crow flies back above her head and lands on the curtain rod above the window where she stands. Tookie looks at the crow, sees its jet black eyes on her, looks straight ahead, takes in the warmth of the sun. Well, now you've done your job, she says. I ain't mad. How could I be? The crow has been in the house for an hour before Tookie scoots it out the open window with a broom, just as the others are coming back into the house. <sighs> that one always gets me. My mother was beaten when she was six months pregnant with me. Mm. And I've written about that in a very different way. Um, more from my perspective as the unborn child. Um, so the, the kind of reasoning or lack of reasoning of that kind of violence, you know, what's happened to Tookie is earlier than what happened to my mom, mm -hmm. you know, with 40s versus 70s. But the, the rationale behind, you know, what they did is the same. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about um, how you approach a topic like that that is definitely not something that's only happened to one woman in history. It's, I'm sure it's happened to many more than we know. And like why the choices that you made about writing that. Well, I wanted to, um, you know, one of the things, one of the things I was thinking about actually with this concept of Sankofa is um, how, and I know a lot of families do this, but I was thinking about particularly in this family, and this book doesn't go all the way back to slavery, even though I've been thinking about writing <clears throat> a prequel where I, I know uh, that, and this, 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 um, this idea of beating somebody into goodness is a pathology that has ran in this family uh, for generations and generations, all the way back to slavery. Um, and, you know, though I, of course, blame Minnie Mae for it, um, it's not even her. It began before her that this is what you have to do. You know, that whole uh, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of thing. Um, and um, I was a spoiled child, so I didn't grow up with this kind of beating, but I knew other people who did. And um, people would get whipped over small things and then large things like this. Uh, and so I wanted to explore that and not flinch away from it um so that's why yeah it's there it is a very unflinching look at that moment so switching gears away from the violence um i don't think i could talk about it much more um one of the recurring themes is this idea of belonging which probably is somewhat related to that we're not really moving away some of the, these characters belong to a place. You have others that don't. They may live there 50 years, but they still don't belong. Uh, some want to be there. Others don't. And, but it's not just a place. Um, a lot of times it's the people, belonging to the people. Um, and so you've got this thread of always being someone else's something. Mm -hmm. um, and you see these, some of these women collapse from the weight of that. And then some of them find a way to break out, whether they do it secretly and run off to the Creek or if they do it more blatantly. Mm -hmm. And you even have some characters like Josephine who are, who's using that idea of creating belonging through having children. Uh, but even that is ethereal and, and dissipating. So um, can you talk a little bit about that whole idea of belonging and, and why that's a part of these stories? Um, well, again, that's uh, something that I think is, um, definitive about, particularly about country life or about small town life. Um, these are things, a theme that I grew up with, um, and I wanted to explore that, um, you know, where, where home is, uh, for someone, for the individual and, and where they're placed through perception of others, particularly in a small town. So that idea of, of displacement and, uh, and belonging is uh, one of those things that have haunted me for a long time about who belongs to a place, who claims a, a place. And of course, uh, we know, uh, living in Appalachia, you know, we hear that all the time. Well, she's not Appalachian. Well, he's, you know, well, I'm Appalachian. You know, it's just all of these uh, 
different uh, variations of the same thing. And, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about personally is that I remember as a young child, uh, you know, we belong to this place. We belong to Indian Creek. Uh, we belong to Casey County. And I remember a man, uh, the Tuckers, was it the Tuckers? I can't remember their last name, but they moved in from Michigan. And I think I was in like the fourth grade. So, you know, flash forward some, you know, I'm beyond 50 now. And um, I was even in my thirties and forties and I would go home and, um, you know, the farmers there, the men who gathered at the, the corner store as uh, part of him would still make fun of this man and say, well, you know, he's not from around here. He's from Michigan and he had, they moved here, you know, 40 years ago or so. Um, so I think that kind of thing sticks. And so I wanted to explore that through, through Joe and uh, through some of the other characters of what it means to be an outsider in a small town and what it means to be an insider, what it means to, to be of a place, but still not feel like you fit in. Um, those are things that I'm sort of haunted by. Those are things that I um, probably are, are repeated themes in my work because they're things that I'm curious about. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing. I was talking to Jay McCoy recently about this whole untapped area of Appalachian literature, you know, the out-migrant experience, you know, and I'm part of that. Mm-hmm. My mom moved to Toledo, Ohio when she was in junior high, mm-hmm. married a northerner, as he would always be known, and moved back. So when I got to Kentucky, which Ashland's my mom's hometown, I didn't fit in. We moved to out to the county and lived in the hills. I didn't fit in because I had an accent somewhere between my mom's and my dad's. Still do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and even after, you know, how many years, you know, 35 years of living in either, you know, Southern Ohio or somewhere in Kentucky, but I was still not of that place. Mm -hmm. He sounds more like he's from Kentucky than I do now. (laughs) (laughs) So I find it kind of interesting, you know, that whole idea of they're not from here Mm -hmm. always sticks. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. And it has to do with, I mean, it has to do with just where you're from. It has to do with culture it has to do with the poetry on your tongue what your accent sounds like mm-hmm. all of those kind of things and <clears throat> so I, those are things that I'm curious about yeah um so it, in that idea of belonging since we've been talking I've mentioned at least half a dozen jobs that you held <laughs> many of these at the same time along with being mother grandmother sister daughter partner friend and community member um, I know that there's more, right? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the short list of things that you are. So there are many of us who are women writing that fight that struggle of being stretched way too thin. Um, and our writing gets moved to the bottom of the pile too often. Um, so what advice do you have for those of us who do juggle all those different roles, hold multiple jobs, have children and grandchildren to keep in mind? What's your advice to these? Well, women? I mean, I think we always have to remember, um, because I think that there are, we talked about this earlier, I think that there are people who get lost in the fray and there are women here, you know, we're talking about Kentucky 
Kentucky women. There are lots of kick-ass Kentucky women writers who are not writing because they've gotten lost. They've lost themselves in that fray somewhere. Um, so I think we have to continue to remind ourselves that we're writers. Like I have to remind myself and every semester when I go in to teach, I tell students that I am a writer who teaches. I'm not a teacher who writes. And part of it, you know, it's selfish. Like the biggest part of it is to remind myself at the beginning of the semester that you are a writer who's teaching, <laughs> not a professor who writes on the side. Like, you know, you've got to get some work in. Um, and, and to write those things down. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, the best advice I've ever gotten from a Kentucky writer has been um, Sina, <clears throat> Sina Jeter Naslin, who directs the, the Spalding program. And uh, she's the director, but she's also over the years become a friend and a mentor. Um, and she says that you have to write your writing time down on the calendar and you don't have to tell anybody else what you're doing. You just, you know, because if you tell somebody I'm going to be writing between nine and 12, uh, a lot of people, including people that love us and people that we love will say, Oh, well, she's just writing between 9 and 12, so she's not really doing anything. So I'm going to call her to have lunch. And sometimes people think that they're doing you a favor. I'm going to call Crystal and and go to lunch because I know she's not doing anything but writing. Um, so you yeah. have to schedule it on your calendar and, and tell people you have a meeting or you have to block it out somehow and get it done. And it's, it's, um, it's a lot easier said than done because I still struggle with it. Um, I have written little bits and pieces, but I haven't written a lot this semester so far yet. Um, you know, my mom died in August and I went straight from um, all of that and carried my grief into the semester and uh, do put some time on the calendar and managed to eke out a little bit, but not as much as I want. But you've got to speak it. Yeah. Yeah. Not just give it the lip service. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but to be a writer, one must write. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you were talking about teaching and you do teach a lot. So over the years at the Kentucky Governor School for the Arts, Moorhead, still at Spalding, done some teaching along with uh, the writer in residence at Berea College, from what I understand, the Appalachian Writers Workshop you've done a number of times, the Carnegie Center and... I don't know, it, it, several others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long list of places. And you and I first met back when you were teaching a writing workshop at the Kentucky State Parks, which I found to be a joy that that even existed when mm -hmm. I moved to Kentucky. I uh, should say moved back to Kentucky after many years of being away. Um, and we were over at Pine Mountain. And I'm just wondering, how does teaching play a part in your writing life? You said, you know, you're a writer who teaches, but mm -hmm. what else is it about that? Um, I mean, I think that teaching can be, uh, can get complicated. You know, for one, it's a way to make a living, right? That's what I do. Uh, you know, if I say I'm a writer who teaches, uh, you know, I have to do, as, uh, I have to do the writing, but I also have to do the teaching. And, and now, and it wasn't always this way, I've worked in, in corporate, I've worked at the Carnegie Center, worked some other jobs, sort of nine to five jobs, uh, 
So I haven't always taught, um, but one of the things that I find about teaching is that it uh, comes from the same part of my brain. It takes the same part of my brain to teach writing as it does to write. So I have to find ways um, not to, like when I first started teaching creative writing, I wrote like even for undergrads who were just wanting to know whether their poem was an A or their short story was an A, <laughs> I was writing five and six page letters to them uh, and really going in depth. And now I try to give them uh, a list, a revision list. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have conferences and we talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a long time. So one of my favorite writers just passed away a few months ago, well, about a month ago, Judith Ortiz Kofer. And uh, she has this uh, line in her, she has an essay called um, At 5 a.m. And she talks about how uh, she wrote a lot of her first books by setting an alarm in the hallway because she knew that she would hit the snooze button. Uh, but she also knew that she wanted to save her husband and her daughter uh, from not getting there. You know, that she didn't want them to lose any sleep. So that she knew that if she said it in the hallway that when it went off, she would get up and she would jump out there to turn it off and she would be up um, and she would write. And one of the lines in that essay is, uh, we have to take the time even if we have to steal it from ourselves. Mm. Um, and I think that's true. Like you have to sacrifice something, even if you go to lunch and you go to lunch by yourself and you set a timer, like we've got to, we have to do it. And that's, that's how I do it. I have to steal it for myself. I know myself as a, as a super mama and super grandmother and, you know, whatever that I won't steal the time from somebody else. So I have to steal it from myself. (laughs) somehow, uh, whether that's four o'clock in the morning or at some other point, uh, during the day, uh, it, it just has to be done. And, and yeah, I, I get joy out of teaching, particularly the, uh, I was telling you earlier, particularly the graduate classes and the community classes, um, because you've got writers that are already invested and want to learn how to write better. And there are a lot of undergraduates like that too, but I have some undergraduates who just want to know, like, I can tell they look at me like, will you please stop talking about all these elements of fiction? All I want to know is how can I get an A? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like they shouldn't have grades like that. Uh, I did a creative writing program at Ohio U and I always wondered, what is an A poem? And... (laughs) But I put myself in a place where I didn't care. But mm-hmm. I saw a lot of my classmates very concerned. Yeah. Like, Why is this a C? <laughs> I was like, who cares? You wrote it. Right. You revise it. <laughs> but it does seem a little arbitrary. That's mm-hmm. why I like the community classes too. No grades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I've been your student in several community classes along the way. Um, Appalachian Writers Workshop, the Kentucky Parks, and uh, even at the Carnegie Center a few uh-huh. times a day. Uh-huh. Um, and I'll tell you the the best lesson I've learned from you uh, is make something happen. 
which <laughs> I think every time you've read something of mine and handed it back to me, there's an MSH in the margins <laughs> and more than one place in that story. I tend to get down and love to write a good description and I will just go on, you know, for pages and pages because it's pretty words and pretty painting. Um, for me, I keep reminding myself of that and I still put the MSH in the margins when I'm reading along and nothing's happening. So it's been a really important lesson to me in progressing my writing, especially now that I'm working on longer fiction, mm -hmm. not just that, you know, eight-page short story. Writing 250-page novels, a whole different endeavor, right? <laughs> so what advice have you received from somebody as, as a student that you've carried with you hmm. today? Um, I think, you know, I probably a lot of things from the writer A.J. Verdell. Um, A.J. lived here in Lexington for a while and um, met with me and um, Jan Eisenhower. Um, we kind of had our own little group and Jan and I would meet with A.J. once a week and uh, she was looking at her work and we were looking at each other's work and I learned a lot um, from her. And I also took a class from her at... Uh, Provincetown Fine Arts uh, Work Center, and she's just a master at at revision. So she taught me how to see my work again, and to not just edit, but to revise, to really look at, um, to make a list mm -hmm. instead of just starting with page one and sort of seeing what I could see to actually have a mission when you come back in to revise. And, um, she taught me that and that that has really forwarded my work um, because I know a lot of, and this happens with people that I work with too, not just students, but in my community classes, you get a piece that somebody's worked on for 10 years mm -hmm. and those first few pages are going to be awesome because every time they look at it again, they come back to page one and they get to page whatever and then they stop and they don't you know, move it forward much or they move it forward, but they still come back to page one every time they come back in to revise um, and massage from there. So <clears throat> those first few pages are bright and shiny and <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. So that's the, that's the biggest lesson that I've learned. Uh, I think is that's forwarded my writing and um, the personal lesson I just told you about from Cena mm -hmm. that's been big too. Yeah. I like the idea of the first few pages being shiny because we know the first 50 pages are what go to agents, right? Mm -hmm. So when I pick up um, any novel that I, I'm trying to figure out if I want to buy it, I do what Ron Houchin calls the 80, page 88 test. <laughs> so flip it open or whatever page that's like about a third of the way through the book. Mm -hmm. Past that 50-page point, what's happening there? Uh -huh. And seeing what attention they played to revision there. That, I didn't really thought about, uh, you know, just looking at short stories that way too. That's, mm -hmm. I might try to do that next time I pick up a collection of short stories because thankfully it's an art that's reviving. Yes, I'm so happy. <laughs> Me too, because I'm really good in 15 pages or less. <laughs> <laughs> um, so since we're here at the Wild Fig, I wanted to talk a little bit about this place, which I love to come and sit and while away some time over tea, um, especially when I have nowhere else to be, it feels like the right place to be. <laughs> well, your spot's right over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got really excited back last fall when I saw the fig 
featured in the New York Times. And, you know, it was an article about using the Internet to keep neighborhood bookstores alive. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? I don't know how that happened. It was so um, uh, such an interesting phone call. And uh, I don't know, I almost feel narcissistic to even tell the truth. But the truth is that I got a call and um, the reporter said, this is so-and-so from the New York Times. And I was like, yes, it's about my book. It's going to be great. <laughs> and she said, oh, I'm calling about the wild thing. And I was like, oh, well, that's great, too. And then we went on and we, we talked about it. Um, and I don't remember how she got a hold of us. Um but somehow, I think it may have been from, um, I don't know. I don't Barista know. Barbie I don't... probably carried. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. It was Barista Barbie. And I think Barista Barbie, which was Ron's brainchild. He's the, he Not is the, the Instagram um, meister and um, keeps that going and keeps us present. Um, I've been driving everybody crazy since he's been sick. I've been... Um, calling over here saying take a picture of something and post it which is not really the same thing as sort of having these campaigns that ron had and barista barbie's been missing but that was great to be in the uh to be in the times we couldn't believe it and they sent a photographer and there was some excitement of whether or not we would make it in the cut because they interviewed a lot of different bookstores and we did mm -hmm. so Barista Barbie carried us on through. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those great articles that I think my daughter and I sent it to each other at the same time. Maybe. Uh -huh. yeah, I mean, it was like, did you see this? We're all like sending it, you know, get really excited in our house about this. Um, and I know I saw it all over the place on social media. Everybody mm -hmm. was excited for you all because this is such a great place for community. Uh, you all have done a lot of stuff here besides serve coffee and sell books. Mm -hmm. um, I was you know, really happy to see that whole idea of the salon come back to mm -hmm. life here. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a lot of different readings for people who don't necessarily have opportunities to read anymore. And I think that's becoming more of an important thing now that we don't have holler poets anymore. Yeah. Finding a space for that kind of community conversation that was what, eight years uh, of our life here as writers right, in right. the city. You know, and different readings. Uh, being able to see Ed McClanahan, <laughs> read anywhere mm -hmm. you know but then to read alongside gurney norman just mm -hmm. here you know all elbow to elbow with people like your best friends yeah um, and bernard like we've had a lot of great events um uh, bernard clay read with them and then when um ada lamone was uh nominated for the national book award we had our send-off party here mm -hmm. and uh we're gonna coming up um next week we're gonna start um sort of a campaign with for Rebecca Howell's book, her new book. Um, we're going to have, we're getting our shipment sent to her for her to sign and then get them back in here. And then she's going to have a special um, exclusive only at the FIG uh, broadside to go with that. So mm -hmm. we like having those writerly things. We had a, the drag story time. Which looked like a blast. <laughs> it was great. Had I been here, I would have been <laughs> in the store for sure. The, I mean, so the other thing is having children come in and read, I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like a huge part of what you all wanted to do was to bring the community in from what I understand. Yes. I've heard you talk before about how important it is to have a neighborhood bookstore. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think it was important to put this bookstore in this particular neighborhood? Well, one of the things that, that we, part of it was 
happenstance. We actually live in Meadowthorpe and that's our, that's where our neighborhood bookstore was when Morgan Adams was there. And then when we, uh, took over that lease and bought some of our original equipment and stuff from, from her, um, over at uh, Morgan Adams books, um, and it became the wild fig. Um, that's what we were trying to do there. And then, um, when we decided to close, we thought, okay, well, back to our art. <laughs> We're closing the fig. It's, you know, this, this, uh, chapter's done. And then, uh, Griffin Van Meter presented us with the idea of moving here. And so one of the things that we thought was important about this is that this area is being gentrified. And I think a lot of the people in the neighborhood have a feeling of sort of being pushed out. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to be here for everybody and to be here for the, for our friends who are coming from other places and our customers who were coming from other places and also uh, for the neighborhood. And we thought it would, uh, would be good for the neighborhood where a lot of, um, African-Americans feel like they're being pushed out to have a black business here, um, a black owned business here. And so we thought all of those things were important. So it was, um, just a mesh of all of these things at the same time, you know, having the opportunity and, um, also thinking it was a good idea mm-hmm. and that's how it all came together. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was preparing for the interview was, your response to the recent burglaries that have happened here. Mm-hmm. And um, it just really moved me and I thought a lot about how hard it must be to write something so filled with love to someone who's taken something from you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I was wondering if you could read some of that. To the 14-year-old boy who shot out the back window of the wild fig with a BB gun last night while trying to break in. Let me start with love. Though I don't know you, and I've never seen you, I am glad the police officer didn't kill you. She could have easily mistaken the BB gun and your waistband for a real gun, and me and your mama would both be crying now. You don't know this, but I was 14 once. My partner who owns this store with me was 14 once. A black 14-year-old boy once. My son was 14 years old once. A black 14-year-old boy once. He liked to walk the streets with his friends too and had a curiosity about the world and how a black boy with a deep untouched wanting made his way into the world of manhood. I am grateful that you had an older brother who received you back after the office, after the officers were done with you. I'm glad you made it through it all. I'm glad the woman police officer made it through it. I don't know if you were the one who broke in the first time, but please know that you cost us much more in the equipment you took than the money. This time we will have to repair the window you broke. Please let me know how I can help you. What do you need? Candy, shoes, school supplies, food, clothes, just a little change jiggling in your pocket. If I could see you, I would give you a good talking to about how hard we work as a small business, about books and the importance of communal spaces, about earning, about stealing, about ancestors, about black history, about the way out, about what you perceive as privilege, about life in general, about my anger, about my disappointment, and about being 14. After all my talking, I would tell you again, 
but I am glad you are alive. <clears throat> so I um almost makes me cry again to read it but um you know of course when i got i got the call at two o'clock in the morning and uh ron had just had his uh, knee surgery and so i came over here i called my son to tell him that i was on my way two o'clock in the morning over here and um once the police officer told me the story um uh, and i went back home i thought about this kid all night long I mean, I stayed up the rest of the night just thinking about um, that he could have lost his life. You know, in this day and time, he could have easily uh, lost his life. And uh, I'm still thinking about him. Of course, he's a juvenile and, you know, they're not going to let me just barge into court when he goes to court. And um, I don't know if I'll ever get my wish fulfilled to meet him or not, but... Um, I'm still thinking about him. Yeah. It was, uh, I thought, a very um, a very loving response to, and thinking about this person as not a burglar, but as someone's child, as someone who could be your child. Mm -hmm. um, because I don't think that we often deal with this whole idea of juvenile delinquents in the caring way that we need to. Mm -hmm. Because there's typically a reason that this stuff is happening. And it could be, he just needs pocket money. It could be any of these other things. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you know, he doesn't, the police officer did tell me he doesn't live directly in this neighborhood. He lives uh, over off of Rand somewhere, you know, a few streets away. But um, I just, uh, I just like to know why and to be able to, to talk to him. I hope that at some point he can see that. And see I that hope he does can. too. Yeah. I'll put that wish into the universe <laughs> and we'll see if it happens. You never know the magic of the internet. Uh, you did mention some other upcoming events as like the uh, things that are coming up at the fig. Mm -hmm. Do you have any upcoming writing workshops? We have, and I've, I've held this as a, as a surprise, but, um, we don't have a firm date yet, but uh, Kim Edwards has generously offered to, to teach a, a fiction workshop here. Um, it's just a matter of getting her schedule together and getting my schedule together. Mm -hmm. Not mine, but getting the fig schedule together. <laughs> um, and we're going to try to do that in the, in the, the coming months. Mm -hmm. um, it, it will probably be, um, well, we're almost to early spring now, but it'll probably be April or May. And we have that so I'm looking forward to that one um, and we do have a few other workshops in the works I'm you know I talked about being overextended but I'm wanting to do one here too even if it's just a weekend short story workshop um, and a few other things that are coming up and some things sort of up our sleeves to do yeah. next. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess people just need to follow you all on Facebook and Instagram too. Yeah, follow us. And um, on Facebook, we don't post a lot of things on Facebook anymore. But one thing that we we do is our schedule, mm -hmm. and it's usually on Facebook. We'll we'll send out um, a Facebook event, but then we'll have our events on the page listed too. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some memoir work. What are, what can we expect from you next? Well, it's been hard since my mom passed away to sort of get back to writing about her again. But I, I want to write 
maybe it's a memoir, maybe it's some other form of nonfiction, but I'm writing a, a nonfiction book about her and uh, her mental health journey. And I'm also working on some fiction projects too. Can't wait. <laughs> Maybe I'll get to hear some early things in a reading. I'm excited. <laughs> well, thanks for chatting with me today, Crystal. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can pick up a copy of Crystal Wilkinson's award-winning books, including her latest, The Birds of Opulence, at the Wild Fig Books and Coffee, located at 726 North Limestone in Lexington. If you're not in Lexington, they'll ship it to you. Just call 859-252-3052. And don't forget to follow them on Instagram and Facebook for information about upcoming events. Tune in to Kick-Ass Kentucky Women Writers next month when I'll be talking to Cynthia Ellingson just before the release of her third novel, The Lighthouse Keeper. I'm your host, Frankie Wolf. Thanks for listening.